and welcome to the board game dojo where sometimes we use communication to learn more about board games and the people who design and develop and publish them today we are here not just with me i know you can be very very happy that it is not just my voice that you get to hear today now before we get actually into the interview we have a lot of different types of podcasts coming up because i will be in japan so i'm not going to be recording live for you i know it's you you maybe have thought that i was recording live this whole time but i'm actually pre-recording all of this stuff for you and then editing it afterwards where we'll have an interview today we'll have a review podcast coming up and then we'll have a psychology podcast for you but today it is not just me it is with the one of the people that had a game in one of my top 10 two-player games of all time. Now, I'm an American, so I don't exactly know how to pronounce his name because we don't learn any other pronunciation other than American English. I do think it is Pedro, but it may be because I'm American, I want to pronounce it Pedro. Pedro Pereira, the designer behind Violet and the Grumpy Knees. Pedro, thank you so much for joining us today. And I am going to make you, and this is a bit of a Japanese, we call it Jiko Shokai. I am going to start you off with this interview of saying, can you please introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, Eric. Yes, thank you so much for uh, for having me. Um, so it's really awesome to be on, the, on your podcast. And uh, yes, so nobody really calls me through anymore that much because uh, I've been uh, living away from Portugal. I was born in Germany and uh, the only least, uh, lived part of my life in Portugal. But uh, anywhere else, I would introduce myself as Pedro. And um, yes, so um, Pedro and uh, I'm originally from Germany. My family is from Portugal, though. Um, I grew up there. I was born in Germany, grew up there. And then, um, so I was always surrounded by lots of board games as I grew up. And, uh, you know, the, this uh, Spiel des Jahres uh, award has always been part of my, of my upbringing and always aware of it. So it was always fun already as a kid to, um, to try out new games that uh, we would have access to very easily in Germany. Um, we moved to Portugal then, and I started working in the um, board game industry uh, when I moved to Belfast in 2012 um, with a company that was based there. And since then, I've been working in, in the board game company, started my own company, ID Games, in 2018. Um, and uh, uh, Violet and the Grand was the first game that I designed on my own. Uh, that we published in um, 2022, actually, first. Uh, sorry, 2021 as a print and play first, and then reiterated it as a physical uh, physical version in 2022. I feel like you are actually the professional podcaster here because I feel like you just previewed a lot of what I'm going to ask you about today, and I'm a little <laughs> bit annoyed that you're already better at my job than I am. So hold on, <laughs> just wait a second. Let's let's click the button and let's rewind a bit because my first question for you is because you got raised in Germany. So we had an entire episode of how like Germany became the capital of board games because mm. of like the fact that board games are kind of just normalized in a sense in, in Germany. Mm. So what is kind of the history that you have with board games? How did you get into board games in the first place? Mm. Um, I... Uh, you know, 
I, I, when I explain this to people, they're always a little bit puzzled about it. It's just amazed that this is true. And this was true already back then. So I was born in 1980 uh, in Germany, as I said. And uh, so I can still remember a neighbor of mine. You know, there were a big family of, I think, five or six children, something like that. And um, one of them, we were both in the same class in school. Uh, so I would spend a lot of time with her. And when we went to her home, there was, this, there was an entire wall of board games already back in, you know, in the mid 80s. Is it one of those um, things where it's like kind of one of those walls that YouTubers have nowadays, where it's just like, like, like a calyx almost like the whole IKEA yeah. shelf of board games? Okay, perfect. Yeah, I can it imagine it now. Yeah, okay. it would be very similar to that, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's crazy. I mean, we would still have uh, things like Happy Hippo, for example, but there were also other things that were very, very uncommon anywhere outside of Germany. So okay. we, we, yeah, we were already quite used to having this. Uh, and uh, I remember vividly playing a game like uh, of Axe, which uh, I don't think the title has ever been translated into uh, English, but it's this... Uh, pick up and delivery game of these trucks that, uh, that drive across the map of Germany and you have to kind of pick up cubes and transport them to another city and that's you completing a, an order to cash in points and things like that you know and it was a award at the game of the year so the Spiel des Jahres at the time something like 87 89 I, I can't remember the, the date you know the year exactly but uh, I remember playing that and uh, also the First big Klaus Teuber game, uh, you know. I, I remember all of those those games, so they, they were a big part of my childhood. I think the big one that I had in my collection, the first one where I really was excited about uh, at the time was uh, Hero Quest. Oh um, sure, uh, yeah, and it was already the kind of the first one that had some expansions as well at the time. This was the 80s still, uh, maybe 90, 91, something like that. And then I actually swapped it with a friend of mine for Star Starcraft. No, Starquest is what it was called in Germany, I think, which was kind of the same, but it was the, the Space Crusader, I think is the, the English title for it. So, yeah, but I still remember, you know, the Klaus Teuber games and the early ones like Barbarossa was one of them, where it was like a guessing game and you had actually um, Play-Doh and you had to to shape it into an object and then other players would have to guess what, what it was for them to score points and advance in the, in the game. Yeah, from the same designer as Catan. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, that's that's uh, that's what I was exposed to for a long time. And then my family, so my parents decided I wanted to move back to Portugal and Portugal had nothing like that, you know. So <laughs> it, uh, I think it was the time I resorted to video games at that point. Um, but, I like that you're um, just like, I had to resort to video games. Like, ah, <laughs> uh, I had to sacrifice my entire joyfulness to go to video games. My teenage years and <laughs> dedicate them to, to video games. So depressing. No, it was great, of course, as well, because that was a whole other uh, world uh, in itself. And um, even that, you know, you, you know, there's lots of stories to tell about that because Germany was big on Nintendo rather than Sega, for example. So that, uh, that Oh, was sure, awesome. yeah interesting one but anyway so uh yeah portugal took a long time to pick up so the first games that came to portugal were were the big ones you know Catan and um Carcassonne. but they only came um something like after 2000 
Oh, so it's mm. kind of similar to the U.S. actually then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So and then that's when I got back into it, you know, big time where I was uh, was an adult at that point. Uh, started. That's when I really started my collection and and gotten back into the hobby. Um, I was quite active um, on Board Game Geek at the time. Um, and I remember I was approached by a designer in Germany because I had been a big fan of their game. It was the, uh, the English title is the Kutschweit to Devil Castle, I think, or just the Devil's Castle. And the German one was the Kutschfahrt to Teufelsburg, which people were making fun of because it was the Kutschfahrt. Um, yeah. Don't worry about and, me. I'm just uh, going to board game geek this. I knew this the whole yeah. time, of course. Um, yeah. It wasn't a widely, you know, it wasn't hugely successful, but for that uh, game, but for that one publisher, which was um, uh, Adlungspiel, the, 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 there were this peculiar publisher that published exclusively decks of cards, nothing else. It was just cards in the packs. But this one game was so original at the time. I thought it was such a great game. I was a huge fan, so I was always on the forums just answering those questions and things like that. And one of the designers, he noticed that, so he approached me at some point asking if I could play test the expansion for them. And that was kind of my first step into the, you know, the, uh, the behind the scene uh, of the industry, what was happening on the, on the other side of the curtain. Um, just getting getting a prototype was so exciting at the time for me of a game that I was a fan of. Um, and then the next step was actually somebody who had designed an abstract game. And that was hilarious because that person, they thought they would dethrone chess as an abstract game. And uh, that is some confidence. Bizarre. Like if I could just yes. have like a little bit of their confidence, I think I could actually market my podcast <laughs> pretty well. But what I'll is this? I can introduce you guys. Well, this was <laughs> this was a bizarre. Yes, this was a bizarre, a very interesting experience, but a very bizarre person because they were convinced that they had reinvented the wheel and you know an abstract book, and and um, they were so obsessed about that. Uh, his wife reached out because she had seen. Um, that I was quite active on Booking Geek, and I had some experience with, uh, 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 you know, prototype uh, testing and things like that. So she reached out for me to test it, and they actually arranged a meeting between uh, the three of us. So that was her husband, the designer, myself, her, and they and they called for a young girl at the time. She was about twenty twenty one, and she was the Portuguese national chess champion. And she had helped at the initial development of that game as well. And I played chess. I'm not as good as uh, she is. I didn't play chess with her, but you know, she's a champion, of course. So I, w- I would play chess very casually. But I, I do understand the basic concept. So I would apply them whenever I play a game, especially an abstract game. I always apply like basic chess principles to try and break it if I can. And what so what does that what I mean did. to you? Sorry, like I'm I'm not really well versed in chess, so I don't really know what that might be. Yeah. Well, in chess, you would have there's like two things you would um, focus on. It's your your timing and it's your position. Mm-hmm. So those are basically the two big advantages you can gain in chess. Timing means you have uh, the initiative, so you're in a position where you can gain time 
on your opponent and your opponent will need to spend additional moves to defend themselves or to re reverse the situation that gives you an edge of your opponent the position of course has to do with how you place your pieces on the board but maybe you've already already taken some of your opponent's pieces which gives you a stronger position overall uh, you know in the presence on the board so I will use this often just as a, as a basic approach to almost any abstract game. And when I say any abstract game, I even mean some Euro games, for example. I Sometimes I try, you know, I play a game, uh, just any game, I just try to rush to the end as quickly as possible and see if I collected more points until then because somebody else was still trying to uh, build a, a, a an engine of some sort. Or if there's money involved, I try to accumulate as much money as possible and see if I can buy all of my points to win the game. Just I try to focus on just one particular aspect of the game to see if it breaks that way. It sounds like we play uh, test the exact same way because I always do the exact <laughs> same thing of like, can I just end this game as quickly as possible and not yeah. actually do half the stuff I'm supposed to do? Mm. Yeah, and that's and that's fun, you know. It's just it's just try out different things, and if it doesn't work, that's great, you know. Then you try something different, but you focus on something, and then at the end, maybe you find that you have to combine two or three things to to actually win. But uh, you know, I did that as well, and uh, and it's funny because to this point, I think I've been beaten at that that one game, that abstract game. I've been beaten maybe once uh, throughout the entirety of the time that I spent. Hold on, game. you can't just tell us about this game and you'd be like, oh, I've only actually lost once in my entire career. <laughs> Not tell us what game this actually is. What game is better than uh, chess, Pietro? Well, it isn't. It isn't, uh, of course, better than chess. But the, the game's called... Well, I, I find it hard to talk about the name specifically because I don't have... Uh, uh, you, you know, there's obviously um, I've I've been talking about it in a mildly derogative way. You know that uh, it was a bizarre experience, so I, I I feel like I shouldn't I shouldn't say what it is. If you want me to, I'll say it, and you can always edit it out. But if if you if you don't put that pressure too... on me. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, it's a game called Trench. Um, it's basically black and white. The rules, the rules that uh, you find for this game now, I actually changed them into those uh, because the the uh, iteration before that was highly flawed, and I played it uh, extremely defensive uh, game at the time, and I just it could not be beaten. Uh, you know the way that uh, that you could go around played. I can't even tell you what those rules were later. We wouldn't do it a public thing, but um, but uh, it was very flawed at the time. So you know it was like okay. So I, I explained that to them at the time. Listen, so I played with the chess champion. We played like five games. She has not beat me once um, because you can do this move here all the time back and forth. So he was very offended by that. You know didn't want to talk to me anymore. <laughs> and uh, so his wife. Oh. Again. Yeah, this is whole story, you see. So I, I we, definitely I've worked, with, worked with designers like that, though, where it's like you tell mm -hmm. them like the certain like this part of the design. I'm not sure if it really works out well, like it like mm -hmm. it's a really good idea, but it actually doesn't really work because I can break it like this and there is no way you can mm -hmm. do anything about it. And they'll go, no, 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 it's fine the way it is. <laughs> yes, there are yes. certain games in Japan that got published without like with my without uh the adjustments that I told them they should make, and they were, mm. and I like now very much despise those games for some reason because I'm like, mm. 
I told you, you, know I told history, you to fix yeah, this you know. and you didn't fix it. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. It's hard for both. You know, it's hard for the designer to having to hear that the game isn't uh, balanced or that it's not um, uh, kind of marketable. It shouldn't be marketed marketed in the way that uh, it is. It's a, it's a hard thing to hear, but also for the playtester, you know, you know its flaws, you know where, where it went wrong to see that they didn't have the, the attention to to um, to make those changes is hard for you to see as well as a, as a play tester, I think, because you put your time and your effort into it, you know, you you send your honest feedback to, to these people and you would think that they should um, at least consider it seriously and not feel offended. Because if, if you're, and I keep telling this to people, if you ask the question to anyone, um, you have to be willing to accept whatever the answer is as well um, and not, not feel offended by it, even if you don't like it. But uh, yeah. So no, and I think, uh, yeah, I think anyway. that's a really, really good point mm. in, in the sense that, you know, like uh, when we, when we first started the, the channel in the sense, like we, we had all, so, so we're kind of a, a mixed match of like, we're kind of a hodgepodge of different countries. And, mm -hmm. you know, our countries have different play styles, different game styles, you know, different design styles, yes. right? Like I'm from the US and we have like the Amerithrash kind of thing. Mm. Um, I'm called, you know, style. So I'm used to like, I grew up chucking dice and having very like thematic games and like people from different countries, like have these different things. And we always yeah. kind of talked about like, what you know, when we review a game, what, what are we looking for? Are we only going to play it once and give kind of a first impression? Are we going to be kind of one of those channels? Are we going to be something like that's like, but we decided that, you know, nothing against the, the, the channels that do the first impression things. I think those are super cool and, you know, get, yeah. get those really like hot, um, impressions out and you know hot reviews out because i mm. think that's how a lot of people now review their games if i don't like it after Absolutely. one time i will get rid of it and so yes. there's definitely a, like a face to it but um you know we decided you know these these designers are putting a lot of time into their games and so we're going to put a lot of time into playing the games trying to play it at the different play counts and making sure you mm. know we're, we're going at it at the same with the same mindset that we do play testing of mm. this part works this part doesn't mm. You know, can we, did we break it? Like at three players, does it just break? And it's usually at three, right? It's like three players is for some reason, like that player count just always seems to break, but it, mm. it's really interesting. And, interesting. and so do you think that the fact that you play tested these games early on and even like gave this feedback kind of started your journey in a way to actually designing your own game? Yeah. So actually, so my answer to that question, the original question, is that where it started? My answer is actually no. It's that's not where it started. Uh, it's oh, an important okay. step. Yeah, it's an important step in the journey uh, because I understand exactly what you mean, of course, and that and that's interesting because we're going to come back to that uh, later in the journey. But what that did for me was so this whole experience with this uh, trench game. I was involved in it quite heavily for a while kind of uh, exploring new directions that the game should take in terms of its rule set. Um, and uh, um, actually, Nathan Morse was there as well. Nathan is an active member, I think, on the trick-taking channel as well. Um, and we had a few conversations about the game as well, which was quite interesting. But what that did for me was actually, so the game had been picked up by a Portuguese toys distributor because they thought it was a really interesting idea to start kind of dipping their toes into the whole board game scene and they started a publishing company together 
And they were very well established in the Portuguese uh, and Spanish market, actually. So they had a very good network, a distribution network set up, and they thought it would be an interesting experiment for them. So I was in a meeting with the designer and the, and the distributor uh, myself. We talked about this. So that's what that did for me was actually put me in first the uh, Nuremberg Toy Show uh, in What's Germany that? at the start of the year. The Nuremberg Toy Show. The, the Nuremberg Toy Show is for toys, what the essence feel is for board games. It's the biggest toy show on the planet. So it's a big deal uh, to get into an, that for sure. Uh, yes, it is. And it's okay. basically, it's always at the uh, last weekend of January that leads into February. And it's basically where everything is determined for the rest of the year and anything toy related, including board games as well. So board games has its own hall. Oh in that toy show and it's basically this it's it's a b2b uh, thing so there's no consumers there's no you don't sell anything it's just pure business you show off your prototypes for the year you strike your first you know deals with your distribution partners as a publisher uh or you, the visitors that come to that you know you still set up your booth it, it looks like essen so you set up your booth, people can sit down and play your games, but the people who come into the show are not consumers. They are uh, business owners, so stores, retailers, distributors, and things like that. They're looking for new products, basically for Christmas, uh, you know, at the other end of the year, um, but throughout the year, basically. So it's a big deal, and I got into that show with just representing uh, this publisher with Trench, the, the abstract board game. And that's really where, and that was always my pitch, uh, you know, people were coming in and and I'd say, you know, I've, I've never been beaten at this. I sit down, you can try. And people would try and I didn't get beaten in uh, at uh, the um, that show. But then in Essen, I went with it again with a booth, just myself selling it. And that's the first time somebody beat me at it and I gave them a copy. <laughs> I don't know if this podcast is supposed to be supporting like the fact that you designed Violet and the Grumpy Knees or how good you are at Trench now. I'm a little bit confused as to what we're even here for at this point. No, I'm just kidding. So, but but you're right. No, this is just this, this <laughs> you know that got me into the industry, and, uh, and from that point, which is on, a big deal, honestly. It is it's, a big it, deal. Like yeah. the board game industry is kind of hard to get into because of how. It's weird how it's new, but old at the same time. Like you kind of have to know people who are already in the industry to get yeah. into the industry. I guess, yeah, I think that's true. Um, it's hard for me to say exactly because, because of how it worked out for me. So it was quite um, circumstantial, you know, just the kind of the stars aligned and then that happened. But that's really where uh, at the time that I uh, went to those shows, I was actually already living in Belfast at that time. I moved to Belfast to 2012. Beautiful city, by the way, if you've never been there, for those who are listening. If you've never been yes. there, you only hear about it in terms of like the peace wall and everything else like that is there, but it's a beautiful yeah. city. It's amazing. The people are just phenomenal there. They're super friendly. It's super chill. You know, it's, it's such a peaceful place and uh, it's a lot of fun. There's lots of new stuff happening all the time. It's crazy. Just uh, it's crazy good. And we went back. So that's where I met my wife as well. And we actually went back there two weeks ago or maybe three weeks by the time you published this. Um, three weeks ago for uh, our wedding. We got married there in City Hall in Belfast. Wait, three um, weeks ago? 
Yes. Yeah. So, well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, yeah. That's Ordet getting married to Violet. <laughs> we'll oh wait, hold on. Oh, you're wait, 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 wait. That's Violet. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, we're gonna have to come back to this later. I this my yes. whole interview like schedule has just been screwed up now. <laughs> oh. Okay. Hold on. No. Yeah. Now we need to finish this story, and I'm gonna come back to that later. Um. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, basically, I was in Belfast then. I had already met a few people uh, at Nuremberg, met them again in Essen. They said, oh, there's this guy here. He lives in Belfast. He's got a publishing company. You should meet because he does like a weekly meeting for board games. I didn't know it by then at that point. So we got introduced and then uh, we became friends. He then hired me for his company. Um, and that's where I then worked for six years, I think it was. Uh, that was almost the entire duration in Belfast, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, and that was a great experience because it was a hugely successful game they had. It was called uh, Rory Story Cubes. Um, oh, I know that one. That is That has recently been getting really popular in Japan as well, actually, because they oh, got a translated right. version of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, yeah, that IP got bought off by Asmodee, uh, in, I think it was maybe 2017, 16, something like that. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I was working still with with a product. I did, actually did the handover to Asmodee at the time because I was overseeing production and logistics for that. So during the time that I spent there, uh, I overlooked production of uh, roughly a million sets a year. Uh, that was kind of their output at that time. Yeah, it was very successful. It was a huge deal. It was. It's not widely known in the board game community because a lot of people don't regard it as a board game. It's more. A lot of them see it more as an activity because you just you know you roll the dice, you tell the story, right? And there's no scoring. There's no winning, losing. It's, it's so oh, a lot gonna, of. Uh, oh, you're getting into an entirely different discussion. I'm going to have to have a podcast episode about that sometime. Of what is a game versus what is an activity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so that was a great experience, you know, uh, it was a hugely pro- uh, successful product, which meant uh, I uh, had a great uh, kind of learning experience in the production, but I also implemented a lot of changes that turned out quite successful, very unusual changes as well at the time, like... uh, because, the, uh, well, the, uh, so the game was being sold to like over 50 countries uh, across the world right mm-hmm. and, uh, so it caused a lot of uh, problems at, at the production level at the time that i started with the company because uh, orders were either being mixed up at the factory or uh, things were being delayed or and we never knew what the issue really was at the factory level so i started uh, visiting the factory uh, to just talk to the people there, see what was going on, you know, what was the problem. So we had discussed those. And then I started implementing a system of um, scheduling orders, which is different from what most people do. They would schedule more production than orders. So what we would say is we we, we talk to all of the distributors and publishers that would buy Story Cubes. And I would say, listen, there's all this volume coming and they all kind of come in at, the, at different times. So the factory is starting to work on, I don't know, maybe 10,000 sets of the original, and then they're in mid-production, and then we place another order for 5,000 sets of the same. So they're just going to bunch that up, which is going to delay the first order, you know, so things like that. So we started saying, okay, so what we do to help is you start working harder on a forecast 
and we will give you three dates up, uh, um, up along the year to place an order. And when you place an order, uh, you have that order for another four months, which is when we take another order, you know, or if you want to, you do, do a forecast for the entire year and we just place it on that. But these are the three dates because I, my, my thinking was um, it's like a restaurant, you know, you go and if you go to a particular restaurant that uh, only prepares fish, you're not going to order meat. So we're going to give you not um, a particular content, but we're going to give you a specific date. And you're only going to place orders with us on those specific dates along the year. And this helped just really bunch everything into single orders, huge orders to the factories. They were happy enough to process all of that in one go. And then they would have another four months before another big batch of uh, orders would come in. So this helped just organize and streamline the orders. And that meant, meant also that I'd go three times a year to Hong Kong, China to oversee those production, make sure that there were no mistakes. And then we started improving the quality of uh, of the output, you know, and all those things. So it was a good uh, good experience just in also kind of flipping the table, uh, table a little bit. And, you know, if you're a successful publisher, um, it's important to know that you don't have to uh, panic just because your clients want something right now. It's okay to sometimes tell the, your client, sorry, you can't have this right now. You'll have to wait until that date that will put you in next time. Please make a better forecast and projection of your sales or for this product. So we kind of started working that way with them. And uh, it worked out okay because uh, big companies like Asmodee, they accepted it, you know, and we, we had worked uh, out like different strategies of how to, to do the production and the logistics of it because it was uh, just so many, you know, so, so many sets every every time we put it in an order. So it was a very interesting um, experience. Um, and that, that was the kind of the main learning experience in, in my career in the board game industry. It was very interesting also then the transition because that was a position of a kind of privilege, you know, it, it's uh, like when I started there, the company was already very successful. So I was under a lot of pressure at the time to improve it, but everybody wanted that product. So it was not like nobody was going to work with you. It just has to work out expectations and frustrations and things like that. But once we did that, it was really like smooth sailing and um, and that's easy then. You know, you're working with all these amazing people across the globe. Uh, anyone needs help, you you help them and, and people are thankful and they remember that about you. So when I started my own company, it was it was a huge transition, of course, because I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm used to doing this. This is going to be easy. Uh, just doing it my, on my own now. So it's going to be my own company when I started Aggie Games. Uh, but what happened then was actually everything resetted and you had to start from scratch from the bottom because even though all these people, they know you and they really, you know, I still have a great relationship with everybody. They had to explain to me, sorry, we can't really just take you like that because you only have like two games at that time. We can't open a new page in our catalog just to have two of your games. You have to build up a catalog. And so I had to rethink the whole way of how to actually start uh, a publishing company of my own. But uh, yeah, that's that was kind of the, the process of how I got into the industry. And, uh, and then Brexit happened. And that was the catalyst for me leaving Belfast. And uh, leaving Belfast, I thought, okay, well, I'll just start my own company and uh, 
and we can take it from there. But something that I noticed really quickly about your your page is that so you know when when I'm interviewing somebody, I try to look up as much as possible, and I you know I look mm-hmm. up like you know you know Pietro and then Agi Games, and it doesn't come up because actually when you go on the page and you say like about us, you mention you don't mention yourself at all. Yeah. You only mention <laughs> the designers the illustrators, the graphic designers that work for you. Mm. Is that partly because you had worked for a company before that you were like, I know all the diff- all the different levels of people that are actually making this company happen and I want to make sure that they are actually the focal point of the company? Or like, um, what was the decision behind that? Because it's very rare in the board game industry that I literally like can't find whose company this is. <sighs> <laughs> okay yeah that's interesting actually that it doesn't appear anywhere i thought i would th- i would have thought at least you know that there would somewhere be something like a registrar or something like that uh, of the company but uh, i think uh, it, it was a conscious decision at the time because i thought i it's basically i was just going to do what what i was already doing the production game development is something that i was doing already before as well um, so I was just going to continue all of that. And the only thing I wouldn't, I didn't do was designing the games. And, uh, and I actually never intended, I have no intent, I had no intentions of designing games at the time. Uh, so designing games and illustrations and uh, graphic design, things like that. Those those are the things I can't do, uh, which frustrate me a little bit, the, the visual parts, of course. But um but I wanted uh, Aggie games to be, because it, it, the first two games, especially, I think I have to check on Botanist as well, but Zura and Hasp, they both actually have game development Aggie games. Uh, so it's never my name, because I wanted Aggie games to be recognized as a, as a company of um, uh, that does a good job in particular things. And it also leaves open that flexibility of, if I get to the point where I need to hire somebody that somebody actually benefits from the development having been made by Agi Games more than having been made by Pedro uh, Pereira, mm-hmm. because that person now is part of Agi Games. So for all uh, others know, they might have been involved in the development of earlier games as well. You know, people would So they can use it as a stepping ask. stone almost. A little bit, yeah, you know. So and I do I do this still, even before grumpiness, I, I always did this, this. If I talk about the company, I talk about us, uh, even though it's just myself at the moment. I don't have uh, anyone hired in the company, but I talk about us. And if I talk about myself, then I will talk about myself. But I, I make that distinction. It happens automatically as well. When I talk about the company, it's always in the plural. Um, I think it just helps me kind of... Uh, keep those, you know, identities apart, my own personal and that of the company. Sure. The royal we, if you were. Mm. Um, but we've we've talked about in this interview, we've talked a lot about, you know, we've talked about Trench, we talked about Rory's story cubes. And yet I I am it this is terrible for in like an auditory podcast because you can't see what I'm saying. But I see behind you, I see things like Bridge City Poker, and then like where n- none of the games we've talked about so far are trick taking or even trick taking. Like a J- oh no, Trench is a trick taking game, right? No, it's abstract. No, no, it's abstract. Abstract, yeah, yeah. So nothing, nothing. You have nothing you have talked about so far is trick taking or trick taking adjacent, and yet 
arguably the things that I know you for, the thing that the people who are listening to you most know you for is trick-taking. Um, mm. Where did trick-taking come into your life? Where did that start? You know, quite early, actually. Um, but uh, mostly traditional trick-taking trick -taking games. Um, so that is to say, for example, in Germany, Skat is a big, uh, big uh, oh, trick-taker. Sure. It's mm -hmm. well, yeah, three-player game, one outbids the other two, and then they play together against the one player to try and win. Um, and there was something similar in Portugal as well um, called Swagger. And it's a two-player team game. That's a four-player team game, so two teams of two. And uh, with the, you just play that with traditional uh, deck of 40 cards, uh, you know, two to seven, and then uh, queen, uh, jack, uh, jack, queen, king, and ace. And, um, and a very, very uh, uh, traditional trick-taking. But I've always loved those because there's something interesting about being able to very satisfying as well about first of all when you play it as a team to be able to communicate with your uh, teammate without talking to them right you always give those hints when you when you pull out a certain suit uh, you you signal to your teammate uh, something particular about this, this game situation so i always thought that was pretty cool and then also you play with the full deck, all of the cards are out, so you can calculate odds of something, the card distribution, and you have a good sense of what to do, and you're testing your own theories of what the game looks like in, in theoretical terms. And I think that's a really interesting way of playing a game. You know, you you know every, all the reasons, all the, the components are out, you know you'll, you want to flush certain things out, and if it works, it proves your theory right. And I think there's something interesting about uh, theorizing, testing, and uh, uh, yeah, um, seeing if, they, if you were right about it or not. Um, so I've always liked that aspect about trick-taking games. But that's true, of course, with uh, traditional trick-taking games, and they've changed a lot over the course of time. Um, and uh, so the next one that I had uh, uh, in my trick-taking um uh path was the uh, wizards by amigo games uh, oh and, sure um, loved it yeah you know the fact that you have to predict and you can you can lose uh all the tricks and still win points with that i think was a really cool twist to the traditional trick taking game and the prediction become they actually don't become harder they become more complex and the speculation becomes a little bit more free because kind of halfway through the game, you have half the deck in, so it's hard to tell which cards are out, which cards are in, but you have always a good sense of how many tricks you can pull off. And uh, so I've always thought that was a really cool twist on the traditional trick taker. And I started um, uh, Gang of Four was the next one. That's more like a, a ladder climbing game, you know, like yeah, a tissue. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a, basically a very simplified tissue, but I thought it was very interesting because it had a very gambly feel to it. I've always felt. Um, what do you mean by and, gambly? Uh, uh, it's a, uh, it's a weird, yeah, it's a weird definition, and I'm not sure if I can put. So apparently, it's a game that's very popular in China, and uh, or maybe you can you can understand that maybe because in Japan, I think the equivalent to this would be Hanafuda. Yeah, and sure. 
Hanafuda would be a game that uh, traditional people would gamble with as well, right? They bet money on the outcome of the game and mm -hmm. yeah, things like that. And that's what the, the, the point scoring system kind of simulates now, right? It's kind of a, a gambling in a controlled environment. <laughs> sure, sure. And so to me, Gang of Four feels very much like that, especially because it has a system where the stronger gets stronger and the weaker gets weaker because you have to swap a card with the player. Who is last and things like that so no oh, so um, it's actually more um that's actually really um similar to daifugal like the actual daifugal ah, okay. uh where yeah, so you that... have the rich man and the poor man and the rich man gets to gives the worst cards to the poor man and the poor man has to give the best cards to the rich man yeah yes yeah something like that yeah so okay uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, and I think there's something that in the streets of China you would see, some, you know, card games like that. Uh, and they're very similar to the system of Gang of Four and Tissue. And I love both of those Gang of Four and Tissue. I think are really, really good games. And um, those would be kind of my games. core. Yeah, they would both be my. The, the, these would be kind of Wizards. Uh, Gang of Four Tissue would be kind of my core experiences with uh, modern trick-taking games. And I have not actually been. I'm not like an enthusiast in the sense of I want to try all sorts of different trick-taking games, uh, but I have a few. So I got the, you mentioned uh, River City, um, Bridge City Poker, but I also got Five Free Five here, which I love. I love that game. Um, I think it's brilliant. Good one. Uh, it's it looks good one. beautiful. Yeah, it looks beautiful. I just, I, just having those cards in my hand is, is all I need to enjoy that game. <laughs> um, it's, it's such a good game, also. Yeah, it's such a beautiful looking game. I love, I love the, the style, you know, the art style. And uh, yeah, so that's that would be my most recent uh, games in the trick taking genre. Uh, but I don't, I don't really own many, and I've tried a few, but I always felt like they felt flat. They were either a variant of Wizards, where they also try to do like different things with uh, with prediction, or you know. Um, yeah, but I did uh, publish Hasp, of course, as well. And my thing with Hasp was that it's basically a micro game. It's got 28 cards, uh, and um, I don't have to remember as much as I do with the traditional trick, uh, you know, card, a card deck. Uh, so to me, that was kind of like, I love it. And um, I know that trick-taking games are big in Germany. Uh, so... You know, I speak fluent German. If I go to a show, people address, you know, approach me. I'll, I'll talk to them in German about trick-taking games. And it's true. Uh, a lot of the buyers in, in uh, Essen of, oh, are generally for Hasp are German more than any other nationality because they're still, they're still keen on trick-taking games. So maybe it's also a little bit of my German side. I don't know. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's got me into. But I feel I have a good understanding of trick-taking games. Um, and, and that's kind of why I ended up designing Violet and the Grumpiness as a trick-taking game. Though interestingly, and this kind of answers part of the question also, it didn't start out as a trick-taking game, actually. Um, it started as a, a roll and write more than a Okay, wait, wait, wait. What? Yes. <laughs> yes. How um, did what? it turn in from a <clears throat> roll and I can't even imagine Violet and the Grumpy Niss, is it? You keep, you, you keep saying Niss, right? Uh, Nissa. Uh, like Nissa. A, Nissa. Uh, at the end, yeah. Okay, so mm. Violet and the Grumpy Nissa is was originally Roland Wright. I can't even imagine that. So wait, how did that yeah. start? What well, what made you actually, I feel like we actually need to get to the point where it's like, 
what was the inspiration for you to not only design your own game, but what is Violet in the Grumpy Nissa? Like, what are those two things? Are those mythological? Mm. Mm. Well, now I feel like Violet, I know who Violet is. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell, yeah. So the story is, is, is actually, people love that story. Yeah. Because there's all these kind of Easter eggs in the game. Um, so do you want to go with how it developed first or about the theme first? I feel like you've already led us into mm. the fact that it started as a roll and write. So let's let's start there <laughs> and then we'll go into it because roll and writes are, yeah. you know, those don't have theme. Trick takers also don't have themes either. And yet somehow you made it happen. So I feel like as we develop this game, we'll actually develop a theme as we go. <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess. Uh, it's I can't. It's a bit blurry. I can't remember which one was first. But the Roland Bright, and this is actually also you know your earlier question. When did you start thinking about designing your own games? Which is a very uh, can you still hear me? Yeah, it's a very unromantic uh, uh, moment uh, in my case because I I wasn't. I've always had this idea that as a publisher, uh, I I didn't want to focus on designing games. I just wanted to focus on creating the concepts around the theme, you know, developing the theme, writing the stories and all that stuff, and then getting into production and the shows and all that. But when the pandemic happened, I didn't want to commit to any designers uh, because I didn't know the future of the company. They were a new company by then. Nobody really knew Aggie Games then. And honestly, not many people do uh, still know or yet know um ID games and uh, so i didn't want to commit to anyone financially because we i wasn't sure what we were able to to promise or even whether we were going to survive you know how long was how was this whole situation going to take and that's really when i started okay well i i'm bored at the moment so i'll start uh, just i'm bored let me just the... design my own game that's what everybody does <laughs> Yeah, so kind of play around with some ideas and, and see what happens. And the thing with the Roland Bright was actually because Violaine, that's my wife, she loves playing Roland Wright. And I was very fatigued at the time because we had just come out of this whole uh, Roland Wright hype started with Quicks, right? And uh, it was it, it actually lasted a lot longer than I thought it would. But, uh, you know, there we were still strong with Roland Wright. And she loved playing Roland Wright. So we played a lot of them at the time. And I was a little bit fatigued. So I thought, oh, OK, well, if we have to play Roland Wright, I'll try to make one that I'd enjoy doing. And uh, I'm sorry, um, I don't mean to laugh. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, I'm so tired of this. Let me design my own. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So, and that's how it actually started. And it was funny because the first version that I had, it was never really very good. And that's why it evolved into something different. But the first one, the first version we we had was, um, it felt like Super Mario Brothers, the Roland Wright, because Violet what? was like this. Yeah, it was actually interesting because it has, it had one really original aspect to it, which was a two player Roland Wright and both players actually draw on the same sheet but they just focus on different aspects on the sheet right because normally each player has their own sheet and you kind of yeah it's almost like a race game so on this one there was like a, a little bit of bigger sheet and they both were trying to fill out different things and so the the nissa player would try and populate the sheet with 
traps and pits and things like that, whereas Violet would just try and hop over them and, and evade the traps. Are you, so you going like... to tell me like there was a mushroom that powered up Violet <laughs> and then there was like a flower thing? Uh, no, I think right? I, yeah, yeah, now exactly. I'm getting it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that was it. So that was actually, the, you know, the outcome was funny in the comics, in a comical sense, not in the in the actually very useful sense. So uh, I didn't want to go with it anywhere. So I started looking at the different, I like the theme though, because so that's kind of where it started springing to life, the theme of Violet and the Grumpy Nessa. Um, and, uh, but it wasn't quite as specific at that point. Um, there was a trigger for it. And um, we'll get to that in a minute. But the shift with the game system, the mechanism shifted from roll and write to trick taking started at that point where I was like, oh, forget the roll and write. I just, uh, I'll go back to trick taking again. Because a, a friend of mine, a friend of mine had been talking about, Pedro, you should uh, publish a trick and uh, trick taking worker placement game <laughs> where you where you play out tricks and the winner of the tricks gets a like privilege on placing the worker somewhere and you know something like that because he loves trick taking games and i thought okay well i already have like this sheet of paper and it could be the board and then i use the trick taking system to to advance the pieces on the board the transition of course originally you know the pencil but what if you turn the pit or the you know the traps or something like that into something physical and the, and and, and uh, violet advancing is not just crossing uh, boxes but is actually a pawn moving along a track and this is really where the transition came in and just because it was trick taking idea and i was so familiar with the trick taking um with the trick taking genre i started considering all of these, uh, you know, possibilities. Like, okay, so you've got Trump suit, you know, you've got these traditionally four different suits. Uh, you've got Trump in them, you've got the leading suit, et cetera, all of these things. And so what does the board do to that? What if the board kind of paces the game, changes, this is where the Trump's, Trump suit is decided rather than a particular ability or or a player, the starting player deciding, you know, uh, what the trump suit is, etc. So because we had the board already at the start before we even got into the trick taking, the board actually started suggesting a lot of the things that we could apply to the trick taking genre that didn't exist uh, by the time, you know, I was doing this. Because I don't think there was the, there were a few games that did use a board but the board was more like always like shifting stones back and forth to you know to cover a symbol or to to you know get to a certain target it never really served the purpose of unfolding the story uh, of that particular theme which is what i really really liked about uh where that idea was going as we as i shifted from the scroll and write to the trick taking uh, game and the, there was the additional advantage of course of uh you know, the cards being illustrated, you can tell a little bit more about the story in the cards as well, etc. So that's really where it shifted in the genre, right? From right to trick-taking game. And then they both, the board and the components and the cards and the system, they kind of started asking questions to one another. You know, what happens if I win the trick? What have, you know, how does violent progress? What does it mean for the other player who doesn't have a pawn on the board? You know, what does the mean to that player and then the board was asking the question you know i you know okay so i advanced and now the space is different so what does that mean is there anything going to happen differently that will ask players to to think of 
the next card in a different light just because you moved on to a new spot. And uh, so that's really how that started. And then we, at the time, so we were still confined, of course, and uh, Hector, our son, he was, I think, uh, three years old at the time. And we were watching with him a show on Netflix called Hilda. Uh, which was about this young girl and she had like a small invisible elf that only she could see as a friend and uh, trolls were this this uh, kind of thing that people perceived as dangerous but she had this passion for the um, you know this untamed nature that comes with trolls and and that and that was kind of the gateway into the theme and to the way that I imagined it because uh, Hector, <laughs> Hector was watching it a lot and one of the characters in the show was actually Anissa. Um, mm, okay. And yeah, and during the time that he was watching the show, there was a phase that he had. It was about it lasted like two, three days only. It was very short. They would ask him to do something. It was like Hector, you know, we're gonna have dinner now. Sit at the table. He'd refuse and he'd cross his arms like, you know, like a grumpy <laughs> child. And that's where that combination of things was like the grumpy missing. He was the grumpy misser. He crossed his arms because in the game you have at the flip side of the cards, there's the misser with his crossed arms. That's a, that's exactly the image that you know he burned into my brain when he refused to do what I asked him to. <laughs> so wait, so Violet is your wife, the grumpy Nissa is your son. That's right. Yes. So, uh, but it's not just the two of them. And in fact, I think it's not so... just the two of them. Yes. So there's, of course, there's Ordep, the friendly troll that uh, Violet wants to to meet. So the names of the character are directly related to the three of us. So Torek is an anagram of Hector. So if you scramble the letters around, you'll get his name. And uh, yeah. um, Violet's name is actually Violen, but a lot of people, we live in Ireland in the Republic of Ireland, a lot of people have a hard time saying her name. She's French. And so she often introduces herself as Violet. Uh, so we use that as, as the character's name. And the troll's name is my name backwards, or that it's actually Pedro spelled backwards. And uh, so the idea <laughs> of the theme, what's happening there really, had to do with our experience as um, as parents, in the sense that we both live abroad, right? Our fam My family now lives in Portugal, Vilain's uh, family, they still live in France, and uh, we live uh, abroad away from all of our families. So we're always had very uncommitted lives in the sense that we've never, you know, let's go visit our parents. Uh, that, that would always be included in our holiday trips. And uh, so, and Violen is, uh, she has a very uh, successful uh, travel blog. So, um, which uh, it's, it's a French travel blog, um, but she's very busy with it all the time. She gets lots of sponsored trips and things like that. So we'd, we'd always travel together, you know, and we're both hobby photographers as well. Uh, so we, we'd always be on the move and everything. So, and then Hector comes along and it's a little bit different, you know, because we still love doing all these things and we still do our projects that we're passionate about. But now one of us has to always look after him because we don't have our family, our extended family, you know, like if you're close to your parents uh, with kids, you can ask your parents to keep your, uh, your child for a weekend so you two can go and, you know, work together on something. But now when we go to a place and I'd also always love taking photographs, Violaine has um, has priority because she does it professionally as well now. 
right? So I can't quite do all the things I used to do. So uh, from that aspect, it's a little bit harder with a child um, because now you have to commit full time, right? So mm -hmm. this, un mm -hmm. this free uncommitted lifestyle that we used to have, uh, we don't have it really anymore. We allow either of us to do to do that, you know, go for two or three days, you know, and uh, I'll keep I'll keep Hector, but I can't go and uh, have the same amount of uh, unresponsible fun <laughs> as I used to before right. Hector. Yeah. So. And that's really, that was really kind of the core of the story is, is Villan and I or Death Patrol. So we're just trying to have some quality time together as a couple. But there's this kid uh, who makes it a little bit harder. So we have to always include him now in whatever plans we have because we don't really have an extended family to help us with that. And I thought it was just an interesting thing to contemplate because you know, it's, uh, I think it's a little bit taboo. People always think if you have a child, you should be, you know, you cannot say anything negative about that experience. It's not a negative experience. It's just kind of a way that we had to rearrange our thing. But we just cannot have that same time to that togetherness anymore as an, you know, intimate couple that just enjoys like uh, an evening out together, going for dinner or whatever, going have fun somewhere for uh, theater. Or... So we can't we can't really do that anymore uh, because because we live abroad. So it's kind of the circumstantial thing. And the story was reflecting a little bit of that. You know, Violet is trying to meet with me, so Violet is trying to meet with me, and the image of. Hector being grumpy came really just because of that coincidence of him crossing his arms. And I thought that was brilliant because it looked so funny and it would make a perfect little character for for that story. Uh, so that was how the theme came together. It was like, uh, you know, Hilda watching Hilda and there being a Nyssa, because I hadn't thought about Nyssa before, really. And then him crossing his arms and then us having to rearrange our lives a little bit um, to accommodate this third person uh, in the midst of the family. So, okay, that actually brings up an interesting question because um, one of the things that uh, I, I often hear Violet and the Grumpy Nisa and Jekyll and Hyde get mm. compared to each other. And because I, I, th I think a lot of it is because they have, they have a little bit of a darker theme, um, just like a darker palette, right? We're not talking mm. like Airland and Sea. We're not talking, you know, Critters at Sea or whatever. Um, but the other thing is that Oftentimes, when you're first starting to play the game, one side just seems a whole lot easier to win than the other. And in Violent the Grumpy Nissa, like especially like Torek, which mm -hmm. I guess in this like learn like hearing about the story behind it, the kid is a lot easier to win as. Like winning mm -hmm. as Violet is an accomplishment. Like, you have to be very good at the game to win this. Mm -hmm. what, do you think that this adds, was this an intentional thing that you think added to the theme and adds to the fact that, like, you know, parenting actually, like, a lot of the time it is the kid, like, that like you have to, you end up giving up to the kid or whatever you want, or was this an unintentional thing that just mm -hmm. happened because of the mechanics that you designed? Because now that I'm actually hearing out the story, I never really thought much of it. But now that I hear about like, actually, you know, it's it's a kind of a it's a story about, you know, parents just trying to 
get together and you know mm. the kid like like oh like every, every like parents love their children but sometimes you know it does get in the way like you said like you know you can't even go to the theater like you have to yeah kind of mm -hmm. change your plans that kind of thing was that an intentional thematic integration mm -hmm. or just that uh, not really uh so and um, i hear that a lot of course but my understanding is that uh it's to do with the play style i don't think it's um how so there's a there's a <laughs> this one's a tricky one because when i say harder to win with Violet, it can actually mean two things. Uh, it can mean you don't win with Violet as often as you win with uh, Torek. But it can also mean uh, you win, you can win as often as you win with Torek, but it's more hard work <laughs> to do it. Okay. So, and I, I think, think most people think of the first one, like, I think most people I think always, when we play one. that game, my wife plays the grumpy Nissa and I play Violet because I'm just mm. so much more experienced with trick takers than she is. Mm. Yes. And I think that's a good approach because the thing about Tor playing Torek is that he, it's just, and I think that's, I like that about the way it connects to the character is that playing Torek is much more reckless because the the loss isn't quite as, you know, it's it doesn't seem impactful to Torek. He doesn't really almost care, you know, I just, oh, it's okay, I lost, I lost, oh, okay, now I win, now I win. So he's a much more reckless play style than Violet was. Playing Violet requires a lot of focus. Like I had a hard time in Essen when I was demoing it because, it's, you know, it's exhausting, there's so much noise, and I and uh, I had a hard time keeping track of the cards my opponents uh, were drafting when I was playing either side, but, you know, it's more important for Violet. Um, so I had a really hard time playing that. So you, when I play the game, I want to be in a quiet place where I can really focus on, on the game. And when you have that space, it's it should be a really tight game. It always comes down like to the last trick. You know, whoever wins the last trick wins the game. Kind of. You, okay, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. But, but before you progress, progress further, so you started the answer by saying, no. It shouldn't be that much harder. But then you described a Torek exactly like a child in which they are <laughs> completely reckless and just yes. they don't care about anything at all. And then Violet is the person who, oh, my gosh, just just I need a quiet area so I can just gain my focus of my thoughts and so I can concentrate <laughs> on the task that I have to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like a parent. That sounds like a parent. No, okay. I know what you mean. But um, well, but the thing is, once Violet starts playing like that, it pushes more out of Torek player also, right? So that I think the initial hurdle is that it seems easy to play Torek because the Violet player doesn't know the game yet. And once they get the hang of it, it should be a much tighter game where the Violet play is forcing the Torek player to also think a little bit better because, so there's a few things about the Violet player. So technically you can win as Violet by losing most of the tricks, right? And I don't think yeah. a lot of people realize this when they play it. Yep. Um, yes. Yeah. It's all about so, timing. Yes. Timing of when to rest. And then once you rest one time, you rest as much as you can to reset your lantern. And then even if you lose one, you let yourself drive by all the losses and just play as closely to Torx cards as you can, right? So that's kind of the way that you do it. And um, well, I'm going to definitely and, edit uh, that part out so people don't actually know how to win. 
<laughs> I want people to think I'm amazing by winning Violet. <laughs> yes, yeah, you hide it. Um, yeah, but and then there's small things, you know, like the key cards for Violet would be the number two, the number five, and the number uh, the number eight. Those are the most important cards because the eight is close to nine, eight, and seven. The five is close to six, five, and four. The two is close to three, two, and one. So once you let Torque win a few tricks, if you have a good spread of you know these numbers, you'll always play close to uh, Torque's number. It doesn't matter what card he plays. And then you can also take advantage of the abilities at the same time to help you uh, kind of feed this this hand further and further and further until you need to, again, win a trick to stop, you know, fill up the lantern, and then you do the same thing over again. So, so again, it's, it's all about a- compromising with Toric. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah, from a penalty <laughs> perspective. Exactly. exactly. So, and I think it's just that people don't quite realize it because your net, your instinct is, of course, winning as many tricks as you can, regardless of what side you play. And that's easier to do with, uh, with Toric. The trick with Violet is really letting Toric win as, as many tricks as you want him to to win, you know, so that, yeah, like the child and the parent. Oh, I'm, right. I'm literally, if you, you can't see this because every, all of you listening to this podcast, I'm just literally doing the shrug emoji of just like, um, so, okay. But actually, so, so what is, so this actually leads me to another question that I actually had for, for Violet and the Grumpy Nissa, because Violet and the Grumpy Nissa, as we know it, I think many of our listeners know it and, you know, I'm going to post it to the discord and people will kind of, you know, know it. This is actually the first iteration of this game. It actually, there was a 2020 version of just the Grumpy Nissa, uh, which got nominated for a print and play award, which is like cool in and of itself. And I have heard like, you're continuing to actually develop this game. Was the fact that, um, you know, once you learn the game, you could start winning as Violet. Was this a, an intentional development of the game? Was it always this way or... Or how did this game develop to the point that yeah. now it is the game that so many of us, including myself, know and love? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Ian. So the yeah, the development was quite interesting. So we already talked about how it turned from uh, roll and write to um, to trick taking game, and so that that moment I was thinking about the print and play. Because I hadn't really thought about uh, being a designer myself. So I thought, okay, so what I'll do is I do a print and play version of it. But I want to try something because I was stuck, you know, I was playing uh, the Nintendo Switch at the time as well. And I actually had stopped playing video games entirely over a decade ago. Uh, I had no consoles in the house and I, I never used my computer for video games. So I had stopped playing video games because I, I felt from a hobby perspective, it's, it had to be either board games or video games because both together just take up too much of my time. You know, they, you burn easily burn all of your <laughs> waking time uh, with with both of them. So I decided I'll, I'm going to ditch the video games and just stick to board games because those are the ones I. Uh, I've never really thought about becoming a, a designer myself. And then when I did that, I thought, okay, I'm going to try something, which is I'll do uh, this. I designed the grumpiness uh, and. Even that got reiterated multiple times. The idea being, uh, having gotten back to video games, 
I had seen, you know, how uh, online gaming had changed the industry and uh, DLCs and things like that. But I thought, okay, that's actually an interesting concept because you can uh, release a game in kind of a almost a, a better state sometimes to have players test it and then, you know, get bug reports, improving the game before you release it. So what if I did something similar with, uh, with this game? So when I first uh, published it as a print and play, the cards had no effects on them. And then I explained, so this is what I want to do. You know, you, people can download it. It's for free. Play it and send me suggestions of things that you would like to see happen in the game. So we actually have gotten some feedback. And then what we did do is we tested a few of them. And we would release a new pack of cards, like the ones in the twos, for example, with an ability on them. And all the rest were still blank. And then now try this and I'll see what you what you think. And then we'd get some more feedback and then we tried out some more and then we implemented some more. And so we gradually added uh, more content to to the game in terms of exchanging blank cards with cards and, uh, and abilities. And um, so that was an interesting... It's clunky when you do it for a board game, of course. You can't really do that um, very well because it, it requires players who play it to commit to actually, you know, print again. But we would always include, like, these are the, card, the new cards, so replace the old ones with these ones. And sometimes you would correct an ability, for example. Oh, here's a correction for that card, you know, all the twos. So remove all the twos from your deck and replace them with these twos. And, uh, and you know, people would download, you can see, like, there's uh, downloads for each one of the the, D- the DLCs coming out of uh, for the Grampiness. And uh, where we got I like that you called it a DLC and not a patch, <laughs> but you're just like, no, the grumpy Nisa yeah. didn't need a patch. Don't, no, 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 it was totally fine the whole time. Yeah, well, the, yeah, you're right. Of course, they're all patches in the end. And, uh, <laughs> but the idea, yeah, the idea was just seeing how video games, you know, the content got added with DLCs and things like that. So that's what we did. And then uh, uh, in the end, that uh, we reached, you know, all the cards with their effects and things like that. And that was the, the, the game. So it was published and people enjoyed it. I had played a few times um, online. And um, so then I started thinking about the next step. So if I wanted to make, to publish a physical copy of it, uh, of this game, I can't publish this copy because uh, somebody paying, you know, 15 euro for it and then somebody else just downloading the files and printing it, uh, that's not a good, uh, good idea. So I needed to make changes to the game to justify a marketable, you know, a, a physical copy. And that means I had to include tokens, you know, punch boards and things like that, that uh, you couldn't that easily, um, you know, you'd have to put a lot more effort into it to to make that. And of course, the files weren't available um, for the punch boards and all that stuff. So uh, that's when we really started looking into the second iteration, which is the one that you have, the Violet and the Grumpiness, uh, and also the the title change because I felt the original, so the print and play was more focused on the grumpiness and not so much on Violet. So when I changed, so I wanted to include Violet as a more prominent uh, character. So when I changed that, it again started asking some of the questions, you know, so she's a young girl, what does she need to, to travel through the night? Of course, she needs a source of light to, to help her and that uh, generated the idea for the lantern track. 
but also she's you know she's young and uh, she's trapped in the middle of the night and there's this pesky little creature in her way so it's natural that she will feel scared and uh, uh <laughs> i'm sorry the whole thing and, is just uh, it's just funny to me it's just like now that i know it's like your wife and son i'm just like this young girl it's just got this pesky little <laughs> i'm sorry i'm really i'm trying to remain professional straight face like oh yes it's very interesting but i'm just I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah i mean yeah of course and um it's funny when you see that but of course i see it you know just for the theme and all that but uh and that's how we we thought about the character. So, um, so it would be natural that she felt uh, fear, you know, coming up and uh, building up inside her. And that's how we then started thinking about the fear track and all those. They, you know, during the development time, they had been changed. We adjusted the length. We tested so many different things for, for it to to feel balanced in the end. And uh, and um, so. Yeah, so that, you know, just that, that started asking questions. And then it felt like Violet was really powerful at some point. So we needed to add, uh, or she was powerful and she was becoming more unique as well, you know, because she had these tracks going for her. And then and suddenly Torek didn't feel interesting anymore. So we had to ask questions about Torek character. So what's what's his motivation? Why is he so grumpy? What's he, you know, what's he doing? Um, so we started looking into... His his motivation as a character and the you know Nissa are quite resourceful and they're of course are like magical creatures as well so they would in some way maybe be able to um, conjure you know a wind or just nothing really super menacing but when you're a small child traveling through the night and you have the, all this resistance coming your way it, it kind of builds up your fear and you feel it's becoming more and more serious as as he gets more and more. You know, persistent in his in his attempts to to um, stop her. So, and that's how then we started looking into the um, the uh, the event tiles that he uh, that he can choose from at the start of the game. Right. One of the one of the things that makes I think Violet and the Grumpiness is so interesting. I think. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. We love the yeah, and we love that there's like different combinations that you can focus on, you know, and they're not, I wouldn't say that they're like strategic, uh, but they cater to different play styles. You know, if you feel like, uh, and it can be your own play style, or when you know your opponent playing Violet and you know that they like to uh, take a lot of breaks with the lantern, you might not like the tiles that affect the lantern much because you know they are, your opponent is going to mitigate that and focus on something else instead. Because when they do a lot of breaks, there's something else they're not doing that's going to help you instead. You know, just small things like that that uh, we thought were, were quite cool. And again, you know, we had play tested it a lot. We had asked people to come up with ideas. A lot of people helped as well. With uh, with ideas for the for the event times, and uh, so it was really cool. And uh, you know, as we kept on playing, the one thing people were always uh, really fascinated by was the theme and how well the theme came to life as you as you played the cards. And I think that's really unique for a trick taking game. Like I can't really think of any other trick taking game where you have a story come to life as you play. Um, I am, I yeah, I I really can't. It's it's very very rare. I think it it takes a lot of other things that are happening. It's never just trick taking. It's something else that's going on. Mm, yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm really happy with with how that worked out. Um, and it's the one thing you know, people. We, we've just been in Essen as well. You know, demoing the game, and people sit down and they're just fascinated by by the story. And um, 
Um, it's a fairly complex game to learn, so it has kind of a, the the entry level is quite uh, quite high. I think you have to really kind of sit down, listen um, to all of the details for you to to uh, to be able to play it uh, moderately well on first play. Uh, but I always tell people, you know, you, this is a learning game. Like you you will get better at it, but uh, but this is might seem a little bit. Uh, uh, you, you'll need a few turns before you realize what's going to happen. Um, seems to be the hook that people are looking for uh, in any board game that's new to them. Whenever I sit people down and explain the rules, you know, people are, ah, this is a cool story, this is fine, and this is how fear advances, like, oh! And uh, so that's when you get, the, you know, people sit down and it's like, okay, this is cool. So they would play, and uh, it was just great to see all the feedback there as well. And, I think that that is a that is a common thing for for me of something that I'm looking for in a like two player only specific game at least mm. in in the sense that like something that makes a game so interesting to me is when when you do sit down for the first time one mm. side just seems so much stronger than the other one it, it happened mm. in the first game that we had of violin the grumpy nissa it happened in um um like i i, I think like a, a game that sold like a ton like watergate right yes. it's like yeah. you know oh nixon is so much stronger what are you talking about you know Torek is so much stronger mm. what are you talking about this game is so unbalanced it's mm. like there is no way there's no mm. way that somebody let this game be published and that is actually <laughs> the case. What can I do? Mm. Like, what am I playing this wrong as? Mm. It's an interesting thing. But I do hear mm. that. I do hear from a little birdie. There are actually, I, sh I should correct myself. I hear from a little hedgehog that this is not actually the final form mm. of Violet and the Grumpy Nissa, that there's more to come. Yes. Yeah, it's true. Um, nothing dramatic, I think. Well, dramatic in terms of the changes to the game, but not that there's like a sequel to it or something like that. So what happened was that uh, we were in Essen uh, 2022. Uh, the games were stuck in customs, though. Like customs had like a two-week uh, backlog to work through. So when our game arrived in Germany, like well ahead of the, of the show in 2022, it had not been released of, from customs on time for us to have it at the booth. Oh no. Uh, so we, yeah, so we still had a booth there. We demoed the game, we had a few copies just to demo. And uh, surprisingly, a lot of people actually pre-ordered the game, which I was, uh, uh, I, I just couldn't believe it now. Because uh, it was a publisher, nobody knows Aki Games, you know, and uh, but the fact they trusted us to to pre-order the game and things like that was amazing. And then when they arrived, it just shipped out everything. But we got so many, you know, great comments and uh, people just sitting down and playing the game. They were like, "Oh, this is amazing!" and so annoyed that the game wasn't available. But we did have publisher interest as well so some publishers came to talk to us then and say this is you know we hear people talk about it, which is another thing you know the one thing is you buy a game and ask you go to the hotel you play it other people see it and then they right. want to find out more another thing was finding out that some people were kind of whispering about the game you played one in the companies amazing it's kind of the best game you know some people said it's the best game of the show um in 2022 we heard but that's yeah, super exciting 
it's it's crazy uh, and this year we had a guy come to us so this year we had the game of course at the booth we played salt there and we had somebody come over saying that it was the coolest title of a show <laughs> i thought it was the coolest title of a show which i'm super hyped about because i, I love the title um and you gotta uh, put that yeah, on the box coolest yeah. title on the show random guy at essen <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, and uh, but uh, you know, it's just great to see to hear all these things and see how people react to to something that you've published and uh, and uh, yeah, and of course, you know, publishers were interested as well. So we were approached by a French publisher uh, last year already. So he he really uh, you know jumped ahead of everybody else. Now this year we also got a bunch of them. Uh, and I was like, sorry, already signed it. So basically, we signed a licensing contract with this company. Um, it's going to be their title now. And what we were doing was actually just reworking the rules to make it an easier, a more accessible game. And so we're actually going to remove a lot of the components. So, for example, Tarek will not have any of the event tokens anymore. There won't be a lantern track. There won't be a fear track. So it's a dramatic change to the game. <laughs> I see I see your reaction. It looks like you want to say something, uh, but you're still thinking about it. What? Yes. Okay. So, and uh, so this convince me, important. convince me, because I'm because yes. I'm like <clears throat> in France right now. If this is a mm -hmm. French publisher, I should be easily able to get this. Mm. You will Con be. Yes. When it's out. Convince yes. me of this. So the uh there's two there's two perspectives on this and it's interesting because i got them both i am the designer of the game but i also am a publisher right? and there's one thing that is important to understand and i think it's a good move for the publisher because uh, it's one thing is important to understand when i designed the game i knew that i was designing it for uh so my target audience was experienced gamer couples <clears throat> uh -huh. right and ironically, if the couple has children also, that was the ultimate irony because uh, the game was about parents spending quality time together, uh, which is hard to accomplish when you have children. And so when they're playing a game <laughs> while the Magumpinist, which is about that, that's actually when they're having quality time together. That's kind of an irony. But uh, it's, it's a fairly complex game, I think. Uh, the rules are very, like, they're very thorough, they're very detailed. And it's one thing for me to sit at a table with somebody at the show and explain all the details to them and kind of handhold them through the game and point out some of the mistakes they might have done, you know, or something they might have done differently. And the completely different thing is for somebody to pick it up because it looks nice and is affordable, right? And I'll look at that book and say, like, oh, my God, I don't understand any of this, you know. So it can be very challenging. And in France, when you talk about France, and it's true for Germany as well, there's still a lot of games sold in general stores as well, not just, yeah. Yeah. Your, you know, yeah, you know that. So Yeah, for us, it's like Monoprix, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, so and so it's not just like specialized stores that just sell board games, all the collectors go and all the, the enthusiasts and, and uh, pro gamers, but it's also the general public that uh, has access to it. So we needed to make sure that the game was accessible for anyone who wants to buy it. So to me, I feel actually the version I published, the one that you own, and uh, probably most of the one that you know your listeners who who own it will, will have this one. Um, I I'm really happy with it. 
I think it's a great game. And I actually had planned a few uh, like expansions for it as well. I, I can tell you some of that stuff. And um, <laughs> um, but then, of course, this opportunity came, and I thought it was really cool, you know, because uh, I'm still a new company, and uh, uh, again, the irony was I never really had any intentions of uh, designing games myself, and it was exactly the game that I designed that actually got the attention of a publisher and and got me a deal. And this is an important step for me as a publishing company because now you know it's going to have a much wider release and um any future title is much more likely to be picked up by any anyone who's interested in, in an interesting game that uh, that is different from what's out there i hope you know but actually like thinking about the fact that mm. like like you're talking about the fact that like it's a fantastic opportunity um and that's actually yeah. like, like worth worthy of a congratulations that's like it's like a fantastic <laughs> deal as you said like yeah. French publishing, like German publishing, like literally, I can probably walk five minutes down the road and get the and get a copy of Catan mm. from where I yes. am, and I'm not even in like yeah. a big area or anything. It's just like I could do that, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so it's cool. What do you think is something that you've learned being both a publisher and being a board game designer, and you've kind of put this all together? kind of thing like you've got aggie games which has a couple of titles that i've enjoyed i've enjoyed hasp i've enjoyed violet and the grumpy nissa those are the only two games i've played so far so mm. I, I think i ordered yeah. three from that starter that you had um yes but like both those so there's there's the there's that mindset of being a publisher and trying to get it to as many people as possible but also in the sense that like you said violet and the grumpy nissa is very good for a particular audience mm, yeah what have you learned about kind of trying to balance those two to both be a successful designer to design the game you want to design versus mm. being a publisher and having a game that is sellable to a wide array of people mm. yeah that's um i think it's uh because I started as a publisher before being a designer, and I'm still not sure I am a designer. I mean, I got this one game that I designed. That and got makes you a designer. Oh, <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> the, some consistency is needed for that to be true. Um, but um, so I'm still a publisher. So, of course, I understand that a publisher needs to adjust the product for its market, its audience, you know, all that stuff. So it didn't really shock me that those differences were made. But it was an interesting, it was an interesting, and it's funny because a publisher sometimes gets back to me, you know, especially after Essen and the feedback was so great. He was like, do you regret your your um, choice of, uh, I was like, no, absolutely not, because, you know, I still... And I explained that the same to him. It's like it's it's one thing to be there and explain it to people, and had a completely different experience to pick up that game from a shelf and and having a hard time with the rules. It just causes frustration. And so the publisher side of me totally understands that, and uh, so it doesn't shock me. And uh, we want the theme to stay true still, you know. And it's going to have like different illustrations as well on the cards. There's going to be some changes to the cards as well, so the cards will have no effects actually which is interesting as well, but there will be a mechanism in the game that allows you to kind of manipulate the, uh, the cards in, in some way. 
And um, yeah, so I think the one thing, you know, to go straight to your question, what I've learned about this experience um, was that uh, as a designer, I think I really went with the idea. And I, as a publisher at the same time, I knew I was doing a game. I knew I was designing a game that was uh, hard to learn, I think, uh, for, for the general public. So it was really for a gamer's game, you know, people who experience gamers. Um, so it was more like a passion project in that sense. Um, but as a publisher, I also thought I'd go with it because the um, strategy would be that you take something that's that feels genuine to people, I hoped, you know, like people should see that this was made with, with passion. There's something different about this from any other trick-taking game. Um, and the theme transpired so well, which I think is not easy to do, you know, when you don't have flavor text and it's not based on a book uh, or something like that. It's hard to come up with your own story and things like that. So I think it's a real, as a, as a designer, really, uh, you know, stick to your uh, idea, I think. Value your own idea, value what you're trying to do with it and where you're trying to take it. And as a publisher, I think taking that gamble was interesting and it changed the way also that, and this I think was a great learning part, it kind of changed the way that we start as a publisher to look at how we are going to approach the market going forward. Because I suddenly started thinking, okay, so I'm actually only going to print 550 units of this. I will take it to the show and we'll see how people react to it. And if they don't like it, it's 550 units, not a huge investment, we'll ditch it and we move on to the next project. But if people like it, then we can think about a wider release or talk to a distributor or license the game. And this is going to be how we work, we're going to work things going forward. Because I think it was a really good and interesting experience in that sense. And it yielded a lot of interesting, you know, there was a lot of interest for the game uh, for different reasons as well, which was kind of an indication that there were different aspects about the game that were working well. It was an interesting mechanism. It was an interesting theme. It was an interesting title, you know, just the visuals and all the stuff. So there was always really positive feedback about all the aspects. So it's a really, it was a really interesting experience. And, and these changes, you know, that you found, you found shocking that it's going to change so much because you consider it such a good game for a two-player game. It's in your top 10, which uh, I still can't really kind of wrap my hand around. But That's right. I'm a small podcast, see, yeah. so it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> well, but you're, but you're an experienced gamer. You know, you're an individual as as, as much value as any other individual, and uh, and your opinion counts. And if somebody like you, you know, you say that it's uh, it's uh, in your top 10 of all times to play a game, that's, that's amazing. And uh, it, it needs to be, you know, acknowledged. <laughs> uh, so to me, it's it's quite, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, quite unbelievable. And, uh, but yeah, you know, and uh, so we, uh, it's, it's an interesting experience in that I feel like I, it's a hard decision. I feel like I have to be open to this uh, and not to be too hung up on my kind of my baby and, uh, you know, my design and uh, allow others to take it and do something slightly different with it. If that makes it reach more people, I think that's okay. Uh, on the other hand, of course, as a designer, you're always like, oh, but there's something nice about also knowing that there's 550 copies that are really rare. 
<laughs> and if if this picks up, you know, the, the this uh, kind of third iteration of the game, if it actually picks up um, and people start enjoying it and talk about it, there will be some people going back, oh my God, there's this other edition, it looks so different, you know, can I get it somewhere? Because what's different about this transition is also, it's not, we're not trying to correct anything about the game. We're not trying to make it a better game. Um, I actually really think that the this, you know, the original Violet and the Grumpiness, I, I, I just love the way that it turned out. And I think it doesn't need any modifications. Um, so there's something about owning one of these copies now, I feel. <laughs> I only I only own two myself. <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. So what you're telling <laughs> me is like five years from now on Board Game Geek, this my copy of Violet and the Grumpy Nissa is going to be worth a lot. Um, so I should really <laughs> try to actually not play it anymore and keep it in shrink wrap, maybe re-shrink wrap it. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> But you actually talked a little bit about this. Is this is legitimately like the last question at the interview? We've gone for a while, but you talked a little bit about mm -hmm. expansions and things like that. And so, is there not just if if we're looking to get a copy that's more um let let's say accessible for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. you know, it's more easy easily learnable. Let's say, yes, right. Yeah. Um, is there more down the pipeline from you from Aggie Games? What what are what are both you as a person and you as a publisher, what, mm -hmm. what you've got coming down the line? What should we be yes, looking out so, for? Yeah. So at the moment, um, I am pursuing uh, still my uh, designer path. <laughs> so I'll try. I'll try uh, two more games. I think before Ooh. deciding to. Yeah, before I know whether I can design more games or whether this was just a one-time thing. So there's a game I hope to publish for next year, and it's called, at the moment at least, you can tell me whether it's a, a fun title or not, it's called The Haunting of Carrick Fergus Castle. Um, that sounds like a Netflix Fergus. series. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, they do a lot of hauntings right now, right? Like yeah. The haunting of whatever, whatever. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so I might change. I don't know, but you know, I think you know Carrick Fergus because that's a place in Northern Ireland, um, and near Belfast. And there's a castle, an old castle there. And a friend of mine, he had this idea for a game. He is from Carrick Fergus, so we started um, looking into this, and um, and it's pretty advanced in terms of development. It's a dice game, dice manipulation game. And so, what I think is quite unique about this game is that you you kind of channel your energy through ghosts so you have these ghost cards each player has ghost cards and these and these ghost cards they're square so whenever you roll your dice you have to manipulate them to uh, accomplish a certain task with them you, let's say you have to roll a full house or something like that right so you rotate one of the cards by 90 degrees and this makes you access an ability let's say it could be flip a die or something like that you know? And the more often you do that, uh, the fewer points you gain uh, at the end of a round because you, you're spending the card, right? And if you if you rotate it all the way to the end, you, it's like you're releasing the ghost from its kind of in-between and you lose the ghost card. And then you have to gain a new one. So you kind of have to chain a new ghost to yourself that you can channel your energy through it. And you're trying to combat a demon 
uh, that's haunting the castle. And it's also a square card. It's like a big square card in the center of the table. And each side gives to each player uh, a task that they have to accomplish with these dice rolling. So you're kind of channeling your energy through these ghosts to manipulate your dice to to combat that demon at the center of the table. And then as you do, you kind of spend the ghosts and they're released into the ether and then you have to get new ghosts chained to yourself to, to help you with the demon. If you ever don't have a ghost uh, in one of the three slots, you open yourself up to being directly attacked by the demon. Uh, because you ha you don't you use them kind of as shields as well at the same time. So, so that's kind of the the gist of what's happening with that game. And uh, so I'm hoping that I'm I'm getting that one out. So the the size of the box would be something maybe like um, like the original King of Tokyo. So, so, so oh, so nice. actually not that big. No, yeah, medium, like a yeah, medium small, something like that. Um, so that's kind of one. The one um, I'm really excited about, but I'm having a hard time with it, is called Hostage Crisis. I love the title because it's actually about teenagers' crisis. Uh, no, sorry, teenagers hostage to love. Okay. What? And uh, that was not where I thought that was going to go. I thought that was going to be like another like hostage negotiator type of thing. Yeah, we want. Yeah, I wanted that. I wanted it to sound like something completely different of what it is. But it's actually about teenagers who are hostage to love. And this one teenager, she wants to go out to meet with her love interest, and she's grounded. So it's a crisis, and she feels like she's being taken hostage at home against her will. Because where she really wants to be is with her love interest. So she she calls her love interest in a panic explains that she's being taken hostage by you know her family so he breaks into this massive mansion mansion where she lives and has to kind of fight his way through to to meet her in the room so it's it's like it and what i want it to be is a dungeon crawler but what always bothered me about dungeon crawlers was that the map is laid out to you so you always find your way and i wanted the character to feel lost once it gets into the mansion so it's actually played always on the same tile um, you don't have a map on it, and as you move, you leave behind a trace of a trace uh, of doors, and you have to kind of, you can't remember, you won't be able to remember. So the backtracking to find an alternative route is going to be really hard for the for the character breaking in because you can't, you know, if you break into a home, into a house that's huge and has like, you know, a hundred rooms. You'll never remember where you are, where you landed. So, and that always bothered me with uh, with um, dungeon crawlers is that you see, you know, you can't see the map, so there's no losing, no getting lost, and no getting into a, a, a tricky situation. And that's kind of what I wanted to to try out with this game. So it's been it's been quite hard to figure out how that system's going to work. But um, I love the title. I love the cover. I already got the cover for it as well. It's going to be. Um, I just love the cover, and uh, I love the theme as well. It's just teenagers uh, experiencing that, you know, that uh, overwhelming uh, sensation of being in love with with someone and not being allowed to to spend time with them. I'm still like like my head is wrapping around the second one because first I thought you were gonna end your sentence with like instead of breaking into it like you stopped and you're like breaking into a mansion. I thought it was gonna be like he was breaking into song, and I was like, oh wait, what kind of game is this gonna be? But then now I'm just like imagining like something like the Goonies, like one of those like 80s, mm. like teenage movies where it's just like, it's going to be like mm. super cheesy, super thing. I'm like, oh man, what's that going to be I tell you what before the, my uh, time? One of the inspirations, yeah, one of the inspirations for it was um, uh, that movie, 
Old Brother. You know the Korean movie? Oh, Old Brother. Old yeah, boy? Old Brother, right? Old Boy, that's the one. Yes, sorry. So the inspiration for it was, you know, the scene when he finally breaks out of his room and there's this corridor. Uh, the Korean one, because in the American they change it quite you know, dramatically. But the corridor scene, where there are all these guys, this horde of of goonies, goons come in, and the, he has to fight his way through. I love that because it was just this isolated space in a building. You know, there's just concrete everywhere. It's just like this one strip uh, corridor where the light was on and everything else was black. That was kind of the idea. That I thought, okay, it was awesome. If like you have just the one tile, that's all of the rooms in in the mansion. It's just this one tile. But as you move from one room to another, you start losing track of did you turn right or did you turn left? Because it's even disorienting when you don't turn the tile itself; it just stays the same. But you keep track of the doors around the tile, and you it's hard to backtrack that way. And and I love the idea of having like a spotlight on this, just this one room, and that's where all the action happens with the character breaking in, trying to get to his uh, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, love interest. Um, so that was Pretty the cinematic. Yeah, I thought so. And I thought it was an interesting experiment. So I'm still working on it. Um, I think the theme is interesting. Uh, the system is hard to crack the way that's going to work. But uh, yeah, we're working on it. But that's the thing. It's like you can, you know, and any game will go through a development. You think you're, you know, you're stuck for a moment and then you go to the next thing and, you know, you think maybe, mm -hmm. oh, you know, I have a good game as is. And, you know, you're nominated for an award and then you end up making an even better version of it. That's that is something completely different. And it's loved by people all over the world. And, you know, yeah, I could do it yeah. again, you know, you know. Things like yeah. that, but <laughs> it's all exciting stuff. You know, we'll see. And you know, it's, it's now it'll be in someone else's hands. But they're quite good, and I'm part of the whole process as well. And yeah, you know, the the revisions and all that stuff. So it's going to be pretty interesting. Yeah. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing what else you have for us. Well, that is going to be about all the time that we have for today. Where can people find you if they want to see what Aggie Games is up to, what you personally are up to as a designer? Where can people go to see everything? Uh, yeah, I'm not very uh, um, social media present. So I, I, we do have, so Aggie Games has got an Instagram account, uh, which is Aggie Games at Aggie Games. And uh, I will be on Working Geek a lot, though. That's uh, where I spend most of my time, and anyone can uh, can uh, get in touch with me there. Of course, also, you can contact me directly with pedro at agigames.com if you have any questions. So anyone can write an email. I'll always reply. Uh, but if, uh, for, like, games, interaction, uh, specific games, I'll always be on Working Geek. My username is pedratore. Uh, which was kind of uh, a name given to me by a friend who loved the movie Predator. <laughs> I was wondering if that was something related, honestly, before we chatted today. Yeah, yeah and I've, I've had this username for this nickname for over 30 years now as well. So it's a lot. It's been with me for a really long time. <laughs> it's older than um, me. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Just like the movie. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> um yeah but i've always used that so I'm, i still have it and i on working weeks I, I have two accounts which is the one for Aki games and the one for myself but the one for myself is the one where i am most active all the time so i can always be reached reached there as well on working geek 
Yeah, so we've got a Facebook page, yeah, and then of course the website, but uh, Board Game Geek. And I will post all of those links in the awesome. show description below so that you can find those easily. I know like sometimes you're you're driving in a car and you can't just like look up on your phone at the moment. But this is also a good way. This is a, this is also a good time to plug in that we are doing our giveaways. Every single episode is another chance for you to enter into it by liking our posts about the episode in and of itself. By going and following us everywhere, you will are you get one additional entry into our all of our giveaways until the new year. So go ahead and find that out. Uh, thank you so much, Pedro, for joining us today really appreciate it it's like Thank nothing God. else we've had on this show before so and <laughs> every single interview we have seriously it's just like teaching us a little bit more about the board game industry and yeah of know, course it's it's it opens our eyes to just a different thing to it so we really appreciate it mm -hmm. thank and cool. thank you everybody who has taken the time to listen to us today until next time Jane. 